whether you block in the sitting, prone, lateral, or even the supine position. We've got some hot tips and tricks to improve your erector spinae game. I'm Amit Power. We are seriously chuffed to be able to share this episode, which is especially for you. I'm Jeff Gadsden. And this is Block It Like It's Hot. Hey Jeff, we're back here now for Block It Like It's Hot episode two. How have you been? Oh, episode two. I can't believe it. Yeah, doing great, mate. Uh, chuff levels are high. Hold on, hold on a minute. Hold on. I'm doing great, mate. What is that? I mean, you're not Australian. What was was that an Australian accent I detected there? <laughs> well, accent, no, sadly. But I, I'm feeling very Commonwealth today. I mean, okay. yeah, I spent some time in Australia. I'm, a, I'm an Anglophile. I love all things... Like London is one of my favorite cities in the world. I if I could if I could live in London, that'd be amazing. But um, mm-hmm. do you do you use the word chuff on a regular? Do you, is that a thing? <laughs> you, <laughs> so you got, I think I, I think for the UK listeners, you got to be careful. I use that. Yes. So we are quite often we will be chuffed by things. So you say, yes. you know what? I was feeling so chuffed with myself today because I performed I performed the most perfect sciatic nerve block. So yeah, we can be chuffed about things. The reason why I say you, you got to be careful is that one of my good friends. Um, can also use the term in a derogatory manner that oh. was a load of chuff um oh, i think uh, I but, see. but yeah but i think i know where you're getting it so yeah i feel when i have a great damn feeling chuffed is that where you're going with that yeah exactly so i so i used it i used it a couple months ago in the block area in exactly the same way yeah mate that that was a i'm so chuffed about the spread of that ql6 block or whatever it was <laughs> yeah, yeah. and um and i had a bunch of blank stares and so i had to, i had to explain what feeling chuffed was and i ended up drawing out a chuffed chart you have so a I, chuffed chart well now you say with like a whiteboard where we keep all our you know <laughs> notes in a block area so i okay, all right, get a marker out draw a chuff chart so here here i am at 6 30 in the morning starting out feeling good my chuff levels are like a seven but then you, know, you start off at a seven. Ch- uh, you're starting chuff levels at seven. I think so. I think so. Most wow. days, yeah. Okay. You know, is that uh, is that after coffee or before coffee? Uh it's pr- well. That's I have a coffee on the way to work, and then there's a a group sort of coffee break at about eight thirty or so. So that's probably. So your pre-caffeine chuff levels are seven. That is that is why you're always a happy guy because I reckon my pre-coffee chuff levels are probably a two. Oh really? Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but then you know, so I was illustrating how that the day you know the chuff levels go up and down, and so you know block doesn't work, and you're just down to a two, and then you know have a good discussion with the trainee, up back up to a nine, etc., okay. etc. So now it's become a thing now, and I'm I'm <laughs> proud to say that I've we've we're now document documenting and and sharing chuff levels um, amongst what our team. What a great idea! What a great idea! How you been? Well, you know, I've had I've actually had a great week. Um, lots of fun, lots of teaching, uh, a bit of lecturing, which is great fun. But you know what? I had a day where my chuff levels dropped to about a two because I had a, a I had a, a, a obviously I can't share many of the details, but let's just say I did a block uh, and everything looked good. And at the end of the operation, it didn't work so much. So that 
that was that was quite a leveler. And, you know, people say you're only as good as your last block. So there's one thing that sticks out in my mind, and that was yeah, that was quite a humbling experience. Oh. So I had a, a, a chuff down. Oh uh, man, that, that is that, a, that sounds terrible. That's a that's a bummer. What what's it like having a fail block? Oh yeah, very <laughs> funny. So you mean never in the life of Gadsden have you ever experienced one of those? I, <laughs> I, um, it, it, I'd be lying. Don't it's, answer no, the question. No, Don't, no, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, it it is it is humbling, right? Like I mean, you. I mean, I fi- I figured I had everything lined up. I did everything that I would do normally. All of the the standard indicators of success were there. However, it did not translate into post operative analgesia. So you know that was. We had to crack out some some opiate, and we had to use some of that. I use the O word now, uh, and actually, everything was fine. <laughs> everything was fine. Everyone was safe. Everyone got happy. But it it was just something to kind of uh, it leveled me a bit. So I didn't block it like it was that hot on that tape. You know, it it happens. And there are times when I'm like, I'll say to the surgeon or I'll say to the the trainee, look, I'm 85% confident this is going to be great. Yeah. Um, but it, it wasn't a great image, and for whatever reason. But once in a while, you get a head scratcher. You're like, man, that looked really good. And I just don't know why it didn't set up the way it should have. But yeah. you're human like the rest of us, Ahmed. I guess. Apparently, yeah. apparently. And, and and maybe, I don't know, it might feature at some point later on in uh, in 2023. But we'll talk more about that later. Jeff, tell me what tell me what your week was like. Please tell me it was better than mine. Um, yeah, chuff levels were good. Yeah, I had an interesting week, actually. I just got back from New Mexico um, where I was teaching a workshop on cervical ESP or cervical ESP, as you might say, in the UK. Ooh, that is very cool. Yeah, for spine surgery. So the, this group is really interested in rolling out C-spine ESPs for their for their spine surgery. That's really fascinating. But so you, and you were you were specifically teaching them how to do that, right? Yeah, they had been, they had started to do um, thoracic and lumbar ESP blocks and want to do C C spine ESPs, but uh, had not yet crossed that barrier. So I was sort of helping them out. Well, you know what? That's really really funny because I figured that this week for our first sort of non intro uh, topic, we go big and we tackle one of the most controversial aspects of modern regional anesthesia that was my posh voice there oh yeah oh you mean the use of nerve stimulation hey hey no not at all i was talking <laughs> about about esp blocks uh, and i thought you know what so i mean you know you've just been teaching yourself so clearly people want to know about it so i thought it'd be great we, we talk about esp blocks and um, we covered some tips and tricks some of the controversies uh and then you know whether we need them or not because you know i was going to say to you when you're working in the cervical area what's wrong with a little bit of local anesthetic by the surgeon to the skin and maybe those are things that we could we could kind of cover and you know what we've had some questions that have come up in advance already from twitter there's a, cha- a chap called gavin sullivan on twitter who said you know i want some tips for what to do when the esp plane or the erectus spiny plane is very deep so what the type of modifications uh we might want to do so what do you think oh love that i think that's a, a great topic uh and yeah, yeah controversial for sure i think there's some uh it's the marmite of blocks is that a fair oh, to say oh yes yeah it's exactly the marmite block so, okay. so jeff let's start let's start when we're talking about esp block why do you think the block is so controversial yeah it's interesting right i think i think there are two reasons that i can think of one is despite getting 
the appropriate spread as as it's described, many times we'll go and test the patient's belly or chest and they don't have a demonstrable sensory block. And that's that's weird and it doesn't add up. And as a, as a regional anesthesiologist, I'm used to putting local anesthetic next to nerves and hey, the arm goes numb or the leg goes numb. But here's here's a situation where I'm putting local anesthetic in a plane and I get a patch of numbness on the back, but nothing on the front that I can see. And yet the patients do feel good, more or less. So that's, I think that's, that's part of it. And then the other part I think is some accumulating cadaver evidence showing a lack of spread ventral to the transverse process. And so if we think that this block works by local anesthetic sort of spreading anteriorly in front and sort of, you know, being a back door to the paravertebral space. You mean a paravertebral by proxy block? Yes, that's that sounds much more professional than back than door back to door. the yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, it, so I think, you know, some of us read these cadaver studies or do these cadaver studies and think, well, we, okay, if the die is only posterior to the TP, how is this supposed to work in the end? You know, I, early on when we were, you know, learning how to do these and playing around with this, um, we had had some failures or at least relative failures. And I kind of got a bit skeptical and said, all right, fine, listen, I'm going to get one of my colleagues to do an ESP on me so I can see what, what? this feels like. Yeah, no. With I, local anesthetic. So you actually had a, an active ESP block performed on yourself. 30 mils of one and a half percent mepivacaine. And uh-huh. um, yeah, and, wow. and and sure enough, it was, uh, so A, it was not that comfortable uh, wow, okay. to go through with zero sedation. Were you, were you, were you sitting? Uh, were you supine? What, 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 oh, not supine. Were you sitting or prone or lateral? What position were you in? Uh, yeah, supine would have been huff. Um, <laughs> the old through the through the bed through the bed technique. Uh, you're you know you. I've always thought of you as an innovator, and and so that's I, I look forward to that that case report. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No sitting. I was sitting, and and so my colleague did one from from the. Uh, it was like mid thoracic, and and I had a I had sure enough like this numb patch on my back i could have gotten my back tattoo that day it would have been perfect hey that's a great indication man we should we should patent that (laughs) yeah so it's nothing and the front or the side so that was a bit disappointing i i I then went so we sort of wrapped this up and i then went to a meeting and i was sitting in the meeting and began to feel a bit jittery and i'm like oh my no i'm gonna get last so i pull pull out my phone and i was texting hey please bring ambu bag to conference room b uh it was all good i'm not for those of you who are wondering when he said he wanted to get last it doesn't mean he was going to be last or left in the meeting he was talking of course about local anesthetic systemic toxicity so please don't try this at home we don't want to hear stories about anybody else don't replicate this. this experience no it was all fine i was i didn't uh i didn't in fact have last but um but the fact what remains that despite a lack of profound sensory block in the anterior lateral parts of the the trunk we still seem to get an effect do you find the same thing you know i do and it to me it totally makes sense that you get you know you know you've seen the anatomy you know you're going to get the dorsal ramus that's not a surprise so why it would work to cover the posterior aspect of the back um, i totally get um i am a believer that it may go a little bit deeper but if i talk about my own personal experience it's slightly different because i think that where you actually deposit the local anesthetic is key and i wonder whether some of the initial people you know people's initial experiences what they actually maybe end up doing is an 
analogous to a rectus sheath block, for example, where they deposit local anaesthetic between the erectospiny group of muscles and the and, and the sheath, but they don't go deep to the sheath. They don't lift the sheath up off the transverse processes because you can get that kind of pseudo intramuscular injection if you're not careful. And I think it's key that you, you you're deep to that fascia. And certainly speaking to one of the the original uh, the, um, original authors of the technique, Ki Jin Chin, he talks about how key it is to be deep to that fascia. And I think you've described it in one of your Blocktober videos as well. Right at the beginning, what people were doing was when they were aiming for the periosteum of the transverse process, that's when they were maybe running into problems, right? Depends what needle you're using, but that can definitely affect the quality of the analgesia you get. And you've described a really nice modification uh, to, to the end point or where you aim for. Tell, tell us a bit more about that, Jeff. Yeah, so I 100% agree. I think that where we were failing early on with ESP was coming down and hitting the top of the transverse process and in effect doing an intramuscular yeah. injection. And in fact, we we um, we did a cadaver study a while back looking looking at dye spread when what interestingly when we dissected open the cadaver we could see the es muscle laying there yes. and the dye had spread within the sheath of the muscle around to the dorsal side like it was inside the casing of a sausage it was really interesting there's and, another food <laughs> reference you and your food reference gadsden i'm just always hungry that's my secret okay. um so it's like you were within the fascia but but it surrounded the muscles within that okay it was fascinating so it traveled it traveled laterally and then around inside the this the sheath or casing of the ES muscle and then obviously didn't right, go ventral. Right. And the implication as you just outlined it was is that you we were not deep enough. We were not through the the yeah. uh, epimysium of the muscle. So so I liked instead of coming on the top, yes. we we've certain since learned to come to the corner of that transverse process and just sort of like snick underneath the yeah. That was that uh, <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, you just like pop through, and then uh, to to really make sure that you're deep to that the the ventral surface of the muscle, and that seems to to be a difference maker in terms of outcomes. So listen, I'll I'll I'll, I'll let you into a secret here. So when ESP first was described, I started to you know I wanted to look for as many opportunities as I could to use it. So I started using it a lot for breast surgery, and you know I've got to be honest, I was disappointed. So I did preemptive analgesia. I've got I got my patients in the prone position because I was often uh, teaching trainees and I didn't want them to be stressed about um, you know time or the patient not being sedated well. So we got the patients well sedated in the prone position. We got them uh, to do the block and I was ever so disappointed with the quality of analgesia. And I would say it definitely was worse than my experience using interpectoral and petroserratus blocks. Did you notice I used the <laughs> I did. So one of the ways I used to get my, uh, my trainees or my fellows to find uh, the correct planes so deep to the fascia was to overshoot intentionally. So come, you know, aim for, aim for that corner, but then overshoot intentionally where they would be in that intertransverse process place. And then I get to withdraw the needle and come back until you got that inject the local anesthetic. You get that pulsatile lifting yeah. of the muscle. And then it occurred to me, well, hold on, you know, I've been involved um, with some Canadian uh, regional anesthetists with describing a technique that goes deep to the erector spiny plane, but in that intertransverse process, the originally called the MTP block. So actually. I started doing a hybrid technique where I did an erector spiny plane injection with a you know a bolus of local anesthetic and I made an iatrogenic hole deep into the intertransverse space and injected about five cc's or five mils of local anesthetic there often but not always associated with a drop in pleura not quite a noise like you were after <laughs> but something um, some some kind of reference yeah. to that and you know what that was that made a difference uh, and i don't know whether 
creating that artificial hole you know meant that that depot of local anesthetic that I injected then had a definite route through but when I do a hybrid technique in breast surgery um, I get pretty good results uh, the other place where I've used it um, is a limited experience in spine surgery my initial experience in lumbar spine surgery has been pretty good uh, but I haven't done enough cases to really get a grip of it but also rib fractures holy moly it shouldn't work for rib fractures it should not work for rib fractures but I've got experiences. I've got a couple of patients in my mind I remember came in in agony and as we were sticking the catheter down and getting the pump programmed suddenly they developed smiles on their faces so I don't know man it's a it's a weird kind of thing it works for me uh in some circumstances but not all Tell, tell us about your experience. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I have We've had similar experiences. And I, I think just to go back to your technical points and, and tips about the making the hole and, and getting deep, I think that's really, really important. And that's sort of, yeah, what we're doing with the getting to the corner, just making sure you're deep to that. That's interesting the, about the perforating, making a bunch of perforations in the, uh, in the, the fascia. <laughs> I'm not saying we pet them, <laughs> I mean, but, you know, may, maybe this No, a no, I think it's, it's really interesting. I mean, it's so you're getting closer to the paravertebral space than, than I think a lot of people are uh, on purpose. So that's yeah. good. Yeah, we, um, we, uh, rib fractures, 100% agree. And, and what's, what's always interesting and challenging about trauma is these patients aren't optimized for their procedures. So they came, yeah. came in on these, uh, oral anticoagulants and so, you know, preclude them from getting an epidural block. We are both paravertebral lovers and 100%. And 100%. so that, that to me, that's the gold standard thoracic block, right? That's the gold standard, right? But mm-hmm. some some of my colleagues, and I'm sure this is widespread, are a little reluctant to put do a paravertebral in someone who's anticoagulated. So the ESP has become a nice plan B block in that in that case. And I, I have yeah. a very vivid recollection of a patient who came in and was really about to be intubated because he was having such trouble yeah. breathing and then we did the csp and and it just was you know, all right he's like all right where's my magazine i'm ready to to just relax and and have a read <laughs> we've done it for breast although frankly yeah. we'll typically do paravertebral or the um yeah the pex blocks uh it, honestly spine has been a complete win for us you're talking about big juicy spine cases right juicy dry um <laughs> So as opposed to a single level decompression, yeah, I'm talking about a multi-level fusion. So, so which, what, how do you pick your yeah, spine? Yeah, I cases? think I think that's a good point. There is a there's a sweet spot there. Um, certainly, a minimally invasive single level microdiscectomy it can be managed lots of different ways, and and maybe you don't need to put 60 mils of local anesthetic in the in the lumbar spine. So, to me, I think sort of three to five level decompression yeah. or fusion instrumentation cases is perfect when you start getting into some of the more extensive deformity cases sort of like you know t1 down to sacrum then you get into issues of well how do i apportion my local anesthetic and can i do a single injection in the middle of that or do i do four separate injections two on each side and that sounds like a that sounds yeah. like a multiple injection type yeah. scenario, right? Well, you know, there's there's something else. I'm, I'm I'm kind of jumping in on your tips here, but I think it's useful. There's something else that I heard uh, Key Jin. I've, this is the second time I mentioned his name, but it might tell you that he's a, one of my uh, one of my regional inspirations. There's something I heard him talk about, which was actually really key. So, 
obviously things are different in your setup where you may have a block room but quite often we might be in a position where um, you're going to do the blocks once the patient's anesthetized because you can and you get them prone and the things that my surgical colleagues would particularly dislike is then spending 15 to 20 minutes drawing up and getting set up to do a block when they're thinking hold on the patient's prone let's go so it's if you're going to do these blocks post-induction it's totally makes sense to be drawn up prepped ready even had the probe cover on the machine so everything's ready to rock and yeah, roll right 100 i mean optimizing your workflow so that you're not, you're you're minimizing the time the surgeon's standing there tapping their foot glaring at you is uh is is helpful uh we do like to do them in the pre-op block area and that makes perfect sense if you've got the time and the setup for that then you're not under any pressure you can do it in your own time in your own way and and optimize positions and not feel the pressure of anybody else right? totally and we're, we're fortunate to have um you know trainees and and people that facilitate that that workflow but if but i think a lot of places will do them for spine once you're induced and flipped and uh and i you know they're they're, they're pretty quick to do so it doesn't take a lot of time they are they are and now, are you using them uh, for any abdominal cases? So the answer is yes, but qualified in in that I often think there are better blocks depending on the incision type. So if I get a call from my colleague and, and say, "Hey, um, Jeff, you know they were they were aiming to go laparoscopic, but they've opened. Can you come and do one of your fancy blocks? I'll put on my cape and then uh, run to the OR." But my first question, <laughs> I could just picture. Yeah, that now. yeah, stay tuned for that video. Um, <laughs> uh, my first question always is it midline and if it's midline pff, easy rectus sheath and then if if it's if it's yeah. subumbilical and lateral like a fan and steel incision i i do i do like a tap lock there but for anything yeah, else yeah, like if it's yeah. multiple qua- we have we have one i mean we have a surgeon that does yes we have <laughs> that does i don't want to well. call anybody out here that does a robotic case with 15 port sites um, and so I'm like, just wow. open the patient up at this point. Um, uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. Uh-huh. how is that minimally invasive? Um, yeah. so for, so you got a lot of areas to cover, right? So you got, you got a lot of areas. So that's, that's when I'll go to either a QL block or an ESP. And, and how do I decide that? BMI. So if it's BMI over 30, okay, man, I, I, I struggle with imaging that anterior QL block a lot of times. Yeah. So, I'll, yep. so I think an ESP, one of the reasons to, to me, to my way of thinking that ESP has just taken off like wildfire is, well, A, it's safe, uh, but B, yes. it's, it's easy. It's simple to do. So if you're hitting a bone, it's easy to teach, easy to learn. And you feel, you feel good about that. So, I mean, so you're talking about um, the, the larger patient. Well, this will, we might as well go straight into that question from Gavin Sullivan. So when you have a patient who is um, with a BMI greater than 30, uh, and we that's a significant proportion of our patients, to be fair, what are the tips? You know, I, I, I'm not afraid to pick up and use the curved array probe. That's probably the first tip I would say. Sometimes, you know, you're trying to image um, with a linear probe, especially one which just has you, gives you that uh, limited footprint, the linear footprint, and you don't have the ability to enhance that, augment that, and turn on a virtual convex mode. Then I won't be afraid to get out the curved array probe. I mean, what, what do you think with those large, slightly larger patients? What do, what do you yeah, use? Yeah, no, 100%. I think it a curved probe is really, really useful to get those deeper views. The other thing that I, I do in the thoracic region is I'll always start 
way out lateral. So I'm seeing seeing ribs and pleura, uh-huh. and because because that's a that's a very easy great easy idea. reproducible image to get. And you okay, great. That's a rib. That's pleura. Perfect. And, and, that, slow- and that, that that's how many people teach the paravirtuals. I mean, that's how I teach my paravirtuals anyway. Always start from the rib so you know where you are and you watch the transition from from rib to transverse process, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So then, and then I'll then I'll start to slide medial, and then you get that transition point from rib to TP, and I'll actually go back and forth multiple times on that. So just to convince myself, all right, rib TP, rib TP, and to to me, that's that gives you that confidence that okay, I'm I'm going to be putting the needle at the right spot. So another thing that I'll do, it, what's hard about finding the TPs in the lumbar region for spine is there are no ribs, so. What I'll do there is is again start way out lateral, so I'm only seeing muscle, and you can sometimes you can see ES, yeah. QL, and psoas muscle, but sometimes you just see a big bunch of muscle and no bones, and then start start to yeah. slide medial, and then at some point you'll get that trident view with the tips of the transverse processes, and then yeah. you know you're there. That's that's a good spot to start to to start. Versus starting, I've come across people who. For lumbar spine ESPs will start in the midline and then start to translate out laterally. And I think it's easy for people to get messed up with between lamina and TP sometimes. So but it's interesting. I've seen a lot of people with ESP in generally have inadvertent drift in their in their probe. And actually they can slide one way or t'other. So I heard Sanjeev Adhikari, who uh, you will know well, um, describe the block. He told me that when he gets his residents to perform ESP blocks, once he's happy that they've identified the correct position, he will actually get a marker pen, a sterile marker pen, and draw a box around the probe. And the trainees are not allowed to let the probe leave the box. And that's one way of making sure they don't let their probe drift medial or lateral. Have you ever heard of that before? Yeah, that's really smart. I like that. I hadn't. Yeah. It's clever, right? Because quite often I'll see, you know, irrespective of what position the the patient's in, you know, you'll because you've been doing it enough times, you can glance at the screen and appreciate from um, from the pattern recognition that the, the the person performing the block is at the right place. And then often what will happen is people will turn around to pick up some local anesthetic and then come back to to put local in the skin, and actually they've moved totally. But they won't necessarily have recognized that. So this, this drawing a box around is something that you know I haven't used yet, but I think it's a clever idea. And I'm imagining it like being a bit like the the operation game. So as soon as someone drifts out of that box, it's and eh. <laughs> 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 yeah, that would be a great idea. So so I guess the other question is, and I don't know what you will think about this. So I'm I'm asking, and and I'm I'm interested genuinely in your response. Ooh, controversy. Does it matter? If the probe is slightly more medial towards what would be a retrolaminar block or slightly more lateral, so you'd be doing the ES over the ribs as opposed to transverse processes, do you think that that fundamentally changes the outcome that you'll get with that block? Personally, I don't. So you mean I've been giving my trainees a hard time the whole time when they're drifting? Well, you know, I, so in terms of outcome and what you'll get out of the block, I, I'm not convinced that will make a difference. In terms of safety and staying away from the neuraxis and making entering the tissues at, a, at an appropriate spot, that might make a difference. But, you know, having dissected mm-hmm cadavers after putting dye in that space you were talking about millimeters sometimes difference and so i i don't mm-hmm. i'm not mm-hmm. convinced that it you know changes the block dynamics much but i like like okay. you i will be compulsive about saying no no you're too medial 
go back and to get that transition. Yeah. And then I want you at the lateral most aspect of that transverse process. Yeah. But maybe we're being a bit too obsessive. I don't know. I, I, I like to I like to replicate what I think is, you know, the original described technique and, and not necessarily add in that many variations apart from that little hybrid technique I talk about. But But maybe we're obsessing about things that we don't need to. Perhaps. I also don't want someone doing a, a thoracic epidural or thoracic spinal inadvertently without yes. that volume of local anesthetic. So so I think I think that's that to me Absolutely. that's the the safety, you know, lens looking at where to do that. Oh and what's your what's your favorite position uh, to have the patients in? Uh, obviously not supine as I incorrectly said earlier on, but prone, lateral sitting. Do you have a preference? Uh, I do <laughs> I do like doing them either lateral or prone. I, sitting, I find what what's tough for me with sitting is I find that my I do get some drift because I can't rest my elbow on something something firm like the bed. And from our workflow point of view, there are some times when I'm doing this at the end of a case, and so I'll I'll say you know yes, fine. I'll be there in two minutes. Turn the patient on the side if you can, and then once I'm done the block, we'll flip them back and extubate. Yeah. So lateral becomes a convenient place. Uh, prone is prone is great. I like prone. Prone is great if you can do that before, you know, before yeah. that it makes a big difference. The other thing about sitting position, of course, from an ergonomic point of view, you're lifting your arm away from your trunk, you're elevating it. And there's an easy point at which you can get fatigued, yeah. right? And that will exacerbate that drift. So that's one of the things about um, being uh, having the patient sitting that can be an issue uh, and also if you're going to be needling from from cordad to cephalad or cordad to cephalad as you guys would say um you have to have the patient quite high up so then you know people then tend to to, to needle from the cephalad or cephalad part do, do you think it makes a difference whether you needle from below down or from or from below up or up down does it make a difference in your in your mind uh, we we haven't found a difference i mean we've, we've done both and it it, it just no. depends on what do you prefer? Uh, whatever ergonomically makes the most sense for me at the time. So I'll, I'll just, yeah. um, and yeah. there are times when in the lumbar ones where the bulk of the booty gets in the way of the needle pass from, from caudat. <laughs> yes. So I'll come, yes. I'll come from kephalad yes. in that, in that uh, instance. But are you saying kephalad especially for me or would you say cephalad I'm doing normally? It especially. Would- East- Especially for, for you, exactly. So listen, Jeff, there's, I've interrupted you, but there's one thing that's kind of being also great to me. What I see a lot of people do is draw up their local anesthetic in a syringe of their choice, whether they're using a 20, a 30, or even a 60cc syringe. They connect it up, and they're trying to find the space, and they're injecting as they go, and they go, no, not there, a bit, a bit more, a bit more. And actually, by the time they get down to what they consider to be the sweet spot, there's no local anesthetic left. So what should we do to minimize that? Uh, we're talking the same language here. I, that's also a, a pet peeve of mine. So I'm a huge user of saline. So I'll, I'll put a I'll put a 10 mil mm-hmm. saline flush on my uh, tubing, for not just for ESPs, but for, for most of the blocks we do. Because I don't, I don't want to waste that yes. precious local anesthetic, especially if I'm looking at mm-hmm. someone who's only 45 kilos and I dosing limits are, are quite constrained. So, you know, get your needle partial away into the target give a little puff of saline and you see the little whoop it opens up advance your needle there's another sound there guys you hear that oh that was that was too high pitch there we go then you're free to 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 puff away with a saline until you see that you're in the right spot and then then switch to local so what about is is there a critical point at which a volume of saline administered into that space will 
impact on the subsequent injection of local anaesthetic? I mean, I think if you're limiting yourself to 10 cc's, probably that makes no difference whatsoever. But what happens if somebody's really struggling to find it for whatever reason, they inject 20 mils or 20 cc's of saline and then try and put the local anaesthetic in? Do you think <laughs> yeah. it has a meaningful, meaningful Probably. Impact? I mean, I think, yeah, I think practically there's there's yeah. a limit to where how much you can put. But really, right. I mean, the... I put a 10 cc on because it's convenient, but we're really usually only using yes. a couple cc's because you because you can on the ultrasound screen you can appreciate the deposition of you know a half a mil or one mil smallest about smallest volumes yeah completely so let's just say um so so you talked about spine uh you talked a bit about breast and you talked about abdominal surgeries um but have you performed ESPs at any of the other areas so tell me about the neck tell me about the sacrum i'm, I'm curious to know so i i'm aware people are doing sacral esps i haven't myself um so i i'd be interested uh-huh. to hear anybody's experience if, if you uh if you have if you have experience and thoughts please share it with us um because surprise surprise there are some case reports uh, in fact there's case reports for probably every part agree, of the agree. body uh people <laughs> But 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 I've heard a lot of people talking about for urogenital procedures uh, using sacral ESP. So I'm I'm curious yeah, to hear about that. As am I. Um, but tell me about the cervical spine. So have you used it? Have you used it up there? Yes. Yeah. It's been uh, so our, our spine surgeons were so impressed with our results for lumbar and thoracolumbar procedures that they're they came to us and said, and it's usually the other way around. Usually we're trying to wow. push push the boundaries yeah. with us, but they came to us and said, hey, what do you guys think about doing this? And and I have to admit, I was a little nervous at the beginning about putting a decent volume of local in the cervical area i mean it's there's a lot of precious real estate there brachial plexus phrenic nerve a lot of big vessels or so i'm told and so as as well especially as some people are using a cervical esp as a as a by proxy technique for doing stuff at the front and getting brachial plexus blocks by proxy. So you put a large volume of local anesthetic around the neck. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can potentially interact with, right? And you end up with a bilateral paralysis of the upper limb, for example. Agree. And I think that, so one thing that we've done with the spine ESP procedure compared to our goals for, say, thoracoabdominal indications, we are hitting the top of the transit process there and and just yes. putting it dorsal because I actually don't want to get any ventral spread. All I want is that is that dorsal okay. ramus. And so for um you know for lumbar ESPs, that is practically oftentimes the only way I can do it because it's so deep and the muscle's so thick. I yes I have a hard time appreciating that plane. So I'll just come down and hit the hit the transit process. But for cervical I'll I'll find my ribs, count up to the first rib, and then slide over till I'm at T1, and I can see T1, T1 and C7, yeah. and they're fairly easy to see prominent transit processes. And so I'll, uh, I'll just come down on either one of those. It doesn't seem to matter which one. With 20 mils, you should get spread up to C3 or C2, and then down to about T4, T5. Wow. You know, the first couple ones I did with this, I was I was sort of my heart was in my mouth as I'm putting this patient off to sleep and waking them up at the end and thinking, have I, have I caused brainstem anesthesia? Have I, you know, and, but no. So it, there were, we haven't seen any evidence of epidural spread, no influence on neuromonitoring for the case in terms of, you know, uh, evoke mm-hmm. potentials. And we haven't seen it and we haven't oh, seen right, any okay. brachial plexus block either. Um, so, so we're just, Excellent. and that, and again, I, I am sticking to hitting the top of the transit process, the dorsal surface, and keeping it in the dorsal plane. So I, I'm not trying to 
do the uh, perforator technique of getting underneath. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so listen, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Um, so before we talk about management of catheters and all the rest of it, why? what is wrong in the cervical area when you don't have a large area What's wrong with local anesthetic by the surgeon, either at the beginning or the end? Uh, and there's an, there's another interesting technique that's come out, uh, which you may have heard. One of our Spanish colleagues, Vicente Roques, uh, has described this wallant or wallant type technique, essentially using. Um, he's done it initially with using um, adrenaline and saline, but I'm sure it will migrate to to you know dilute local anesthetic with adrenaline to minimise blood loss. But what's wrong with pre-incisional local anesthetic, and why do you think that? Cervical ESP may have a role. I'm, I'm just yeah, curious. No, it's a great question, and and certainly, you know, this this discussion goes beyond just ESPs. And if you have a surgeon that can infiltrate well, then sometimes that's hard to beat. Yeah, you know, uh, inguinal hernia yeah. artery. Yeah, yeah. Like there is, if you use a good local anesthetic technique done by the surgeon, I can't beat that uh, with a tap lock or ilioinguinal iliohepagastric. So, but anyway, mm. back to ESP. We did a a cadaver study that we presented at ASRA a couple of years ago where we, we did a lumbar ESP with 30 mils of dye and then had a surgeon infiltrate the other side of a cadaver using his technique that he would do for, for spine surgery. And the goal was to, to uh-huh. open it up then and see where this dye was. And shocker, the ESP did a did a good job with good spread up and up to L1 and down to, to L5 would clearly have worked for that spine procedure, whereas the surgeon infiltration of that, the soft tissue, was was scant. It was like not very good staining okay. of, of any of the muscle fibers. And the surgeon was doing this pre, pre-dissection, so pre-incision. He just like, this is what I would normally do if I was going to do pre-incision. We, yeah. We said, Here, here's, your, here's your syringe. Do what you would normally do. And... Uh, now, this wasn't a clinical study. We couldn't ask that cadaver how he or she felt afterwards, obviously. But correct. looking at the pattern of dye on the surgical side, it was clear that it was there were patches that would have been missed. And so I, I do think, yeah. and this is my bias as a, as a regional anesthesiologist, with ultrasound guidance, putting the local in a fascial plane like we do, we're likely to get more, con- at least more consistent results than than a, than yep. plain old surgical infiltration. I think that's good. I think that's good enough for me. I I, I get that. Um, I guess the other situation I'm wondering about because most of the the spine surgeons that I've been working with, um, they they kind of split fifty fifty. Some of them will put local anesthetic pre-incision, uh, and I don't have any control of where that goes. And some of them will do it at the end. But what I haven't ever got surgeons to do is once they finish their dissection is at that point when they've got everything exposed to do their variation of, of local anesthetic infiltration so I, I guess i'm talking about an esp under direct vision or an um or a retrolamina block under direct vision I, I don't know whether they would be keen to do that but that's that's something to consider but um let's say when you're going to pop a catheter in what are the things that you think are key tips for people putting catheters in so what's the sweet spot for local anesthetic in for catheter insertion and what regimes do you think work best i've got an idea in my mind what i think is the right what what we do but what what do you think works best yeah that's a great question and we'll do uh at our center we're doing esp catheters for a lot of the thoracoscopic procedures so and typically we'll, oh, we'll right, pick okay. the sort of midpoint of the expected mm-hmm. surgical action uh say t6 and then direct the needle in there open up the space with a, with your bolus and then thread a catheter in and, and aim to not thread it in very much, right? So we don't want it skiving off 
either medial or laterally. So I, I just I just put a few centimeters with a catheter in there. And then the yep. the trick to that, in our experience, is having the right infusion regimen. And to me, that means an intermittent bolus every so often to sort of reinflate that space with the local, as opposed to a a continuous slow drip that's only going to ever get that one that one dermatome because it's a big space right and part of the success part of the way you initiate the block is by giving that initial bolus so you know you could establish it the local anesthetic will then have a duration of action based upon the mass of drug you've injected and depends upon how long that it takes that drug to get redistributed but if you're only ever resupplying that space with five to to seven to ten to fifteen cc's of local anesthetic an hour you can't see how you can get that i I don't see how you can re-achieve anything as good as that initial bolus completely 100 percent. so and we're fortunate to have pumps that are electronic that can do a an intermittent bolus of 20 mils every three hours and that that seems to work great but you you know you can have a clinician bolus you can have someone go around um and and, you know just manually inject 20 mils every you know whatever your interval is that you want. Uh, and that works That works great. So, okay, so we, let's come back to the Marmite uh, of local anesthetics. So so you and I have both thought of some indications, some places where we could use them. And, uh, you know, in the trauma was, a, in a way, it was an easy setting because people coming in with pathologies such as rib fractures and maybe they're on DOAX or direct oral anticoagulant agents. They used to be called NOAX, right? When did that change happen from <laughs> NOAX to DOAX? So these patients may come in on that. And of course, now rib fractures, it sometimes means that getting a patient to move around is not that easy so ESP by definition unless I can invent that posterior supine access to the ESP um, you've got to move the patient around so it's not always easy in the trauma situation but that being said trauma is an indication I get so what how do how do you answer those people and we've we've all got friends and colleagues who think you know if you want some decent thoracic uh, analgesia do a thoracic epidural or a thoracic paravertebral don't waste your time doing something that you don't know how it works. So apart from that trauma situation that I've described then, how do we answer that? I mean, it's not our duty to, to necessarily answer or justify it, but I'm just trying to, for our listeners, for them to justify why they're going to do a technique. And certainly when they know there are some people that don't necessarily promote a certain technique, how, how do you justify continuing to perform the block when we don't necessarily know how it works? So, yeah, it's a good question. And I think that just because we don't know how it works doesn't mean that it doesn't and we've i've certainly had uh good success with it if if not if not perfect yes. success so i think i think more the question to answer your question it becomes an issue of is a block better than no block and so if and and, and yep. this sort of gets around to that uh the idea of the plan a blocks versus plan b c and d and and yeah in a perfect world uh everyone had would have the hands of Amit Pawa and could do a paravertebral block um, for thoracic, for all these indications. But there's a reason why the paravertebral block is not a plan A block, right? Because not everybody necessarily has the confidence to do that. Or the hands of Amit Pawa. <laughs> so, or yeah, and, and there, there's times when, you know, putting a needle next to the pleura is is scary sometimes if if you're not doing yeah. it every day. The fact that ESP is is safe, it's versatile, you can do it at cervical thoracic lumbar sacral and it's and it's simple and therefore scalable so if if something's simple then it's not just the the omits of the world that are doing it it's it's all of us 
Uh, and so that's that. I think yeah. that uh, to me, if I had a choice, if my my brother was getting a, a procedure and and that uh, anesthetist said, uh, look, I could do no block or I could do an ESP. Hey, please give yeah. him an ESP. Yeah, you take yeah. that right. And, and maybe it's about marginal gains. So you know, it's not going to be the be all and end all. But you know, if it reduces the amount of opioid requirement, if it if it just enhances that recovery, it reduces some of the drop you get in your quality of recovery points. If it does something to make you feel better, maybe it's worthwhile. What I find is fascinating is both you and I are paraverteral enthusiasts. And yet we're still saying it's worthwhile learning this technique. And it's fascinating. You know, you can be a paravertebral enthusiast. You can be a proponent of the paravertebral and still support this technique because we also appreciate that not everybody's going to have the time or the skill or the ability to employ the efforts to get good at doing a paravertebral. Whereas this is maybe something that's a bit more achievable, right? Totally agree. Yep. I feel that we've ended this podcast on a positive, right? Chuff levels are high. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, you've taken my chuff levels from a two pre-coffee. Um, probably, I'm a ten plus now. I, oh. I am totally. I'm, I'm up there. <laughs> so, I'm chuffed to hear that. <laughs> well, I'm I'm chuffed that you're chuffed. <laughs> what do you reckon? Do you, do you reckon we should wrap up this uh, this this? Yeah, episode? and if listen, if any of you have any experiences, questions, thoughts, attitudes, beliefs about ESB that you want to share with us, please hit us up on any of our social media accounts. We've got Twitter, absolutely, because we yeah we've got Twitter. And what what are we on Twitter? We are at blockit underscore hun underscore hot underscore yep. pod uh, and what else we have got, we got Jeff uh, we've got uh, YouTube at block it like it's hot yeah why did you take the easy one because then I <laughs> now I've got to say insta at, at, at block it like it's hot with an underscore between each of those words so block underscore it underscore like etc I'm not going to say the whole thing man and we want people to get engaged we want people to tweet us we want us to use the hashtag and if they ask us questions we'll definitely bring them up on the next episode Absolutely. right Yep, we want this to be interactive. Yeah, we want it's got to be interactive, and you know, and that actually gives us some extra to talk about. Otherwise, it's just you and I talking <laughs> dad jokes, which we still haven't told. Okay, next time there's got to be a dad joke deal. deal. Every episode must feature a dad joke from now on. Okay, so Jeff, till the next episode, what do we hope they all do? Block it like it's hot. Till next time, guys. <laughs> See you. See you next time. <laughs>